You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Good morning. I'm Jessica Matthews, president of the Carnegie Endowment. It's a pleasure to welcome you all on this gray morning um, to uh, for a very important uh, release of the 2012 World Energy Outlook. Uh, one of the most important documents uh, in the whole field of energy um, from the world's foremost source of, uh, of authoritative data and analysis on energy, the International Energy Agency. It's a real honor for us to host this U.S. launch of the report, um, and uh, uh, we're, we're enormously happy both to have all of you here and to have the report's chief authors and the Deputy Secretary of Energy to, to talk about it. This is a paradoxical year um, on energy policy because we are all used to thinking, uh, trained to think, um, of this enormous super tanker that is the world energy market, and we expect a super tanker to move very slowly. Uh, we don't expect it to uh, change course quickly, and yet all of a sudden we are looking at some astonishing shifts in the fundamentals of the energy market, uh, fundamentals that um, some of us have, have lived with for decades and which seem to have changed, not seem to have, but which have changed literally o overnight. So we are, um, uh, we are being asked uh, and challenged to think very differently um, about some of the things that we have taken for granted for decades. Um, uh, just one finding, of course, that you've probably already heard um, on the news is that this new IEA report finds that um, the U.S. is on its way to becoming the world's largest uh, oil producer by 2020, uh, larger even than Saudi Arabia. Uh, this is a once unthinkable um, uh, state of affairs, which has profound implications beyond the, the energy markets for geopolitics, for world security, for climate change, and for the global economy. Um, I should point out that the thing that never gets said um, uh, on uh, the news discussions is that this figure of becoming the world's largest oil producer is um, compounded of two things. It's compounded of increased production and reduced demand. And the reduced demand comes principally from one of the great achievements of the Obama first term, the enormous increase in CAFE standards. Uh, and that's... Um, I've worked on energy policy since the 1970s, I hate to say. Um, uh, that's the missing link in the U.S. mental picture of energy, which is that, that net availability is compounded both of supply and demand. People still have a hard time um, remembering that. Um, the outlook also uh, repeats and underlines its warning from last year uh, that the world is not on a sustainable path yet with respect to climate change. It is true that U.S. Uh, oil consumption has fallen and will decrease further because of CAFE, 
that coal consumption in the U.S. is down um, and uh, as natural gas becomes the low-cost low source for power consumption. Um, and that the U.S. is on pace to meet its Copenhagen goal of 17 to 20% reduction below, CO, below 2005 carbon emissions by 2020. But depending on how unconventional oils are developed, uh, the U.S. may be cleaning up its own climate act only to export the carbon-laden fuels elsewhere into the exact same atmosphere uh, whose impacts uh, we live with. Um, at the same time um, uh, that American, uh, American overall energy use is still much too carbon intensive and emerging markets, emerging countries, um, demand will continue to rise, um, which leads to, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the right adjective, um, uh, if you're paying attention, I think terrifying predictions about um, likely warming by mid-century or end of the century. Um, you'll hear today uh, three to three and a half degrees Celsius by mid-century. Um, others have projected four to six degrees by 2100. Um, uh, the likely impacts of that degree of warming um, is, is going to be um, probably catastrophic um, or it's exceedingly expensive um, beyond certainly the capacity of huge number of countries to deal with. Um, all of this is happening as the world's leaders uh, gather today uh, in Doha for the Climate Change Conference. Um, and, uh, and so I hope we will be thinking of the um, whole range of energy policies um, this morning, not just the all of the above that we constantly hear about here, which are always referred to as sources of supply, but also uh, sources of improved efficiency of, of reducing demand. Um, I won't take more of your time um, from this distinguished panel. I, I, I want to both uh, thank all of them for being with us. Um, uh, you're going to hear first from the U.S. Deputy Secretary of Energy, Dan Poneman, uh, someone who during his uh, long years of public service in Washington has gained a reputation as one of our more thoughtful and well-informed um, experts uh, on a whole range of, of issues, including where he and I used to work together on nuclear power and nonproliferation. Um, we will then hear um, from the head of the uh, IEA, Maria van der, Ho van der Hoven, um, she is a senior member of the, uh, she was previously a senior member of the Dutch cabinet as Minister of Economic Affairs and has been a powerful and uh, um, important leader of the IEA uh, in her current post. Fatih Birol will speak third. He's the IEA's chief economist, has been lead author of this report for many years and a key contributor always. The discussion will be, be moderated by David Burwell, who directs Carnegie's Energy and Climate Program. And let me turn it over to David. Thank you, Jessica. Uh, one of the joys of uh, working here at Carnegie uh, is to work for a person who is not only a great thinker and a great writer, 
uh, and a great and a scientist, but is also passionate passionate about this issue of energy and climate. And and Jessica is certainly that. So uh, it's um, a real honor to to be here and to run this program. Uh, the mission of the Energy and Climate Program here at Carnegie is to provide a platform for leaders, experts, and scholars to inform and discuss pressing energy and climate issues, both domestic and global. However, regardless of the precise topic, the work of the International Energy Agency, and in particular the annual World Energy Outlook Report, is considered a prime source of objective information uh, on these topics. We are very pleased to again host uh, the launch, the U.S. launch of this report. Uh, on format, uh, uh, as Jessica noted, we will first have some remarks by Secretary Poneman uh, from the Department of Energy. Unfortunately, he has to leave at 10.30, so he will start, followed by Maria Vanderhoven, uh, who will give an overview of uh, the report and some of its implications uh, on both uh, supply and on both energy and climate issues, uh, followed by Fatith Barol, who will present in detail the the uh, results and uh, of this outlook. Uh, that uh, will be followed by uh, a question and answer period of, we hope to have at least 30 to 40 minutes on question and answer, uh, and wrap up a little bit before noon. So with that, why don't I introduce... Uh, to turn it over to Deputy Secretary Poneman. Thank you, uh, David. It is uh, truly uh, a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to come to Carnegie, uh, and it's an especial pleasure today. For those of us in this field, we wait for this report every year like a kid waiting for his Christmas presents. It makes us Maybe it makes it seem like policy wonks, but I think it has the additional virtue of being true. Uh, and uh, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, say uh, a few words about my good friend and uh, your leader here at Carnegie, Jessica Tuckman Matthews. And I didn't compare notes with David, so you can see I scribbled this down myself. <laughs> but first of all, you know, in that world uh, of people who care deeply and passionately about energy and climate and security, uh, Jessica Tuckman Matthews is... Uh, legendary and properly so. And I, I came up with the three things that really strike me uh, when I think about Jessica. She is an original thinker with compelling logic, and she writes beautifully. And so I think, I think we all of us owe a debt of gratitude for of her thought leadership for all these years. So, and, and it's always a pleasure... Uh, to have the opportunity to uh, share the stage with Maria Vanderhoven and, and, and Fadi Birol. Uh, I haven't seen you since last week, as I think about it. Uh, but it also gives us an opportunity to stop and think, and some of us of a certain age can remember when there wasn't an IEA. It's a little hard to think of it now because it has become so pivotal in our world, so central analytically and, and otherwise. Uh, but, of course, it was a creature of earlier oil crises, uh, and it's truly a mark of the uh, progress the agency has made and its extraordinary leadership that it has moved from an emergency mechanism to someplace where uh, it's really a center of thought leadership. It's a center of uh, analytical rigor. 
it's a center of where not only the data is collected fairly and honestly, but that it is thought through and written about uh, fairly in a way that really uh, has made the place not only uh, a forum where people go to have honest discussions about energy and its implications and climate, uh, but also has a robust muscular ability to rise to a crisis uh, and deal with actually the kinds of causes that led to its creation in the first place. And in that respect, I think we all owe a debt of gratitude to the agency and its leadership, and even in the relatively short time I've encumbered my current position to think of the very critical moments we faced when we lost 1.3 million barrels a day of oil from the Libyan oil disruption, and we worked intensively in our own respective countries, but through the mechanisms of the IEA uh, for a collective response that I think assured uh, the world that its oil demands would continue to be met. Uh, so really the IEA has grown beyond its original mandate uh, and uh, is something that I think we all uh, have a, a great deal to be thankful for. Now, they venture into areas that I uh, and many others would shrink from, such as predicting the future. And you know, I tried to find out who made that famous line first about predictions are very dangerous, especially about the future. So I've got uh, the candidates are Niels Bohr, Casey Stingel, and Yogi Berra. But the point is, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> but I, I uh, honor and uh, thank uh, Maria and Fatih uh, for presenting uh, their findings looking ahead. And you know what? This is a case in which, in some instances, the results and the endpoint are less important than the process because we need to be thinking of the implications. The things that we are doing are, as we sometimes say, they're baked into our processes for years and for decades to come. So if the IEA were not doing this, somebody would need to or we would just be careening into a future that we did not understand with implications not only for ourselves, not only for our neighbors, but for our children and their children. So I think, uh, again, we all have, uh, owe a, a debt of gratitude. It is a different world even now, and I don't have to venture uh, far into the future to reflect on the transformational events that we've seen here in the past few years, and I will confine myself for a few minutes uh, to the United States. Uh, we do have uh, a, a transformed energy picture, and we do have, uh, as Jessica was saying, and all of the above strategy, but I want to be very, very clear that energy efficiency and demand-side management is an integral part of uh, all of the above, and, and it's, it's been a prodigious part of what we have seen so far in terms of improvements of our energy picture. We have a variety of initiatives uh, that the president has led, better buildings initiatives, clean fleet initiatives, as, as uh, Jessica was noting, a very, very important step taken with a new fuel economy standards doubling to 54.5 uh, miles uh, per gallon standards, which is going to have a tremendous benefit, not only in terms of uh, managing uh, U.S. demand, but also in terms of reducing our impact on our climate. And so that is, uh, I want to be very clear, part of the story. At the same time, there's no getting around the fact that our hydrocarbon picture has been vastly transformed. The uh, shale gas revolution, I think Dan Jurgen uh, likes to call it, I think it's a fair description, uh, to go from very, very modest investment that I'm still proud, even though I wasn't there at the time, the Department of Energy invested 
on the order of $137 million into these abstruse technologies that no one had much interest in in the late 70s and early 1980s. And now we see since 2000, we've gone from uh, something like 2% to over 35% of our annual gas production out of uh, shale gas resources. We're the leading gas producer in the world now. Uh, and uh, and it is making all kinds of opportunities available to us that we're seeking to capitalize by using smart technology. And if you look at some of the grants that we've made through our uh, Advanced Research Projects uh, uh, Agency for Energy, ARPE, into uh, things that could be done for compressed natural gas vehicles, for example, that could improve the uh, materials that are used for the tanks so you could lighten up the tanks, you could improve the sorbent materials so you could get more molecules packed in. And if you were able to get the um, uh, natural gas vehicles uh, that now are confined mainly to fleet applications to be applicable across the wider light duty and passenger vehicle fleet, the demand uh, would go sky high. Our uh, greenhouse gas emissions would uh, decline still further, and we have tremendous opportunities out there to realize. The story in oil is one that is uh, an incredible story as well. We are now, uh, for the first time since 1949, net exporters of oil product. Uh, our production is higher than any time since the mid-90s. Since 2008, our imports of oil have declined from 57 to 42 percent. Uh, so it's really made a huge difference. But if one thing the president's been very clear about is that uh, this aspect of our policy and this benefit that we have achieved through the uh, responsible development of these resources is no excuse to turn away from the future. In fact, in addition to the demand side management that we were talking about a few minutes ago, obviously uh, we are strongly committed to the renewable energy resources. We've doubled production of power from our uh, wind and solar and geothermal resources. Uh, in terms of carbon-free electrons, we've had uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission approve the first new commercial nuclear power plants in this country in three decades. And we are continuing uh, in all aspects to pursue uh, the all-of-the-above strategy, including the billions of dollars that we have invested in clean coal technology and carbon capture and sequestration. So it's a historic moment, it's a pivotal moment, and we have to keep in mind as we uh, pursue these technologies, that in so doing, we're, we're not only addressing this nation's energy security, but we're creating the jobs for the future. We're uh, at the cutting edge of technologies that have tremendous uh, promise uh, for improved uh, living conditions around the world, increased prosperity for the American people and for all those who are uh, investing in these uh, cutting-edge technologies. And uh, it's, it's, it's a moment of great promise, in short. Uh, as we do this, we have to keep always in mind what I know that uh, Marie and Fati will talk about in terms of uh, the impact on our climate and how we can make smart decisions today that will have beneficial effects in the long run. I just want to make one other uh, comment about the work of the IEA because one of the things that they do and they do well is they take deep dives on particular countries. And uh, for the last year or so, uh, we have been focused very, very heavily on Iraq uh, as we have pivoted from uh, one form of uh, U.S. involvement to another form, uh, and a form that is seeking to secure the gains that were so uh, uh, painstakingly won over the last decade. And as we see this tremendous opportunity uh, 
of uh, a nation that's got uh, on the order of 160 billion dollar uh, barrels of reserves in the south and uh, I don't know what the IEA numbers are but something like 45 billion barrels in the north uh, and the progress that has already been made as they have now uh, reached something on the order of 3.3 million barrels of oil production a day is something that has the prospect of uh, bringing not only a great future and prosperity uh, to a unified uh, and stable Iraq, but also, frankly, a very important contributor to global oil markets to making sure the demands that are continuing to rise uh, in Asia and the Middle East are met even as the OECD demand tends to, to level out. But I fear I will encroach a bit uh, onto my colleagues' time and their expertise, so I will, will stop by uh, turning to... Uh, Maria Vanderhoven, I would just say about her, I've had the opportunity now for four years now since uh, one of the earlier uh, international meetings of the International Energy Forum to, to work with Maria Vanderhoven. And uh, she is uh, an outstanding public servant of uh, impeccable integrity, uh, keen intelligence, uh, and I think an unflinching uh, realism when it comes to not only facing, but also talking about the energy challenges that we all face today. Uh, I think we all of us owe uh, a lot uh, to Maria Vanderhoven and her leadership of the International Agen Energy Agency. Uh, I'm uh, sorry that I will miss the longer presentations here now, but I'm looking forward to having further opportunities even later today to exchange thoughts and views. Uh, and uh, it's a very exciting day for all of us. And, and with that, I would say uh, to all of you, thank you for the great work that you do here at Carnegie and helping keep us honest and thinking about these very challenging issues. And I'd like to uh, close by thanking and welcoming to the microphone Maria Vanderhoven. Thank you. Well then, thank you very much for your nice words. But before you leave, I don't predict the future. Ah. No, I'll, t I'll tell you why. We have some assumptions, we put yeah. them in a model, and then there's an outcome. But if reality changes, and we have to change the assumptions because of reality, game changes, there will be a different outcome. So let's be vigilant. Vigilance is the watchword. And okay. we didn't plan this. No. This is what you call a colloquy. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. See, See you. Well, dear friends, thank you very much for, for having us here today. And um, I think it's important that we realize we are talking about a model, about a scenario, and about the outcome of a model. But the moment things change, because reality changes, because there are game changes, well, then the outcome of the change. And this is something we have always to be very careful about. I'll come back to that later once again. What we can see at this, at this moment, we have a global energy system that is hugely complex. It's constructed of many interconnected parts. They pull and push on one together. And all of these changes need to be analyzed and understood together if decisions are to be taken that put the world on a track towards a secure, affordable, and sustainable energy future. Now, that's what we plan to do with the World Energy out of 2012. We take new developments into account, and we paint a comprehensive picture of the global energy system now and in the future. And the big question, of course, is what does it tell us? Well, it, the World Energy Outlook 2012 tells us a few things. The first is the global energy landscape is changing rapidly. 
And these changes will recast our expectations about the role of different countries, regions, and fuels over the coming decades. And let me explain some of the reasons why. At this moment, we can see three game changes. One of the game changers is the unconventional oil and gas production, especially here in North America and the United States. The second game changer is Iraq. And the third game changer, who is not really completely visible, but will, have the, will really have the chance to be a real game changer, is energy efficiency. And we are, I'm going to, we are going to talk about the three of these. Now, in World Energy Outlook, we highlight a resurgence in oil and gas supply in some countries. And it was mentioned before, it was the high prices and new technology that are really unlocking North America's unconventional oil and gas resources. But repercussions of that will be, will be felt globally. And this surge in unconventional oil production, oil and gas production in the United States has changed its outlook from being pessimistic a few years ago to being optimistic now. We project that the United States will reclaim its status as the world's largest oil producer for the time. And there will, I would like to make two comments on that. One is that it will accelerate the switch in direction of international oil trade with an increasing share of Middle East exports going to Asia. And the second thing is, it looks like as if there's money to burn. But there is no money to burn, because if you burn it, your money is gone. And if we look into the position of the United States, it does not make the United States independent. Because even in 2035, oil demand will be met by imports. 25% of it will be met by imports. And oil is a global market, not like gas. It's a difference. Then going back to the Middle East and to, to Iraq, a country whose ambitions to expand oil and gas output will not be limited by the size of its resources or by the costs of producing them. And we can see that after a decade of war, New Iraq's oil production is already, already touching new highs and it stands as the world's third largest exporter. Well, we project that it will produce much more in the future, reaching more than 6 million barrels a day in 2020 and more than 8 million barrels a day in 2035. Gas, yes, gas, the global outlook for gas continues to be bright, but the regional picture, of course, varies. And we can see that reflected in the prices that gas commands in different markets around the world. Very low prices here in, in North America, and they, they feed through to very low electricity prices. And that provides a competitive benefit, a competitive advantage to domestic industry. But there's another consequence as well. It frees up cold supplies, and the cold supplies, they go to Europe pushing down Europe's coal prices and making it more attractive than gas for, men, for many power generators. And we can see this, for instance, in the Netherlands, where many gas turbines are running at low operating levels. Now, looking forward, the, our world energy outlook projects that global gas demand will grow by around 50% by 2035, and that the price relationships between the regional gas markets will strengthen as liquefied natural gas traders, trade becomes more flexible and contract terms evolve. And this again will mean that changes in one part of the world are felt more quickly elsewhere. We also project that nearly half of the increase in global supply between now and 2035 will be unconventional gas. But 
there has to be a note of caution because unconventional gas business is still in its formative years and a global boom, a global boom in production is not assured. So while the world energy outlook confirms that, for instance, global demand for electricity will grow rapidly, the sources of this supply will change in several ways. So there is a need to respond to policy decisions such as those in Germany and Switzerland to scale back the role of nuclear. And Japan, Japan and France have also signaled an intention to reduce their reliance on nuclear. Well, and it's, it's, it's of course, it's obvious. Countries that do step away from nuclear will need other sources of generation to, to fill the gap. And... Um, well, it's quite simple to see what, that's, what that is. It's, uh, it's fossils and, of course, it's renewables. So, what, although we lower our outlook for nuclear compared with last year, globally, it's still expected to grow in absolute terms. And that's driven by expanded generation in China, Korea, India and Russia. Now, in many developed countries, there will be a significant focus on replacing aging power, infra power sector infrastructure. And in many emerging countries, the focus will be on the need for large-scale investments in new supply, as this is where most of the demand growth will occur. And there, there will also be a need to respond to new electricity market developments, Within individual countries and regions, competitive markets are creating stronger links between gas and coal, while at the same time, these markets need to adapt to the increasing role of renewables. Now, I would like to mention a few words on our third game changer. You know, every year, the World Energy Outlook focuses on a different fuel, and this year it takes a cross-cutting perspective by focusing on energy efficiency. And I fully agree with what you said, Jessica, because as it, it's, it's important. It's as important in meeting rising demand as in, well, because if you want to meet rising demand, energy efficiency is as important as additional growth in supply. And this is exactly what the U.S. experience shows us. It's not only about growing production, growth in production, is also about a decrease in demand, and that's energy efficiency. So let's not forget about this issue because it's vital also for the future. It's a key option, energy efficiency. It's a key option in the hands of policymakers because it, it offers cost-effective benefits with regard to energy security, emissions reductions, and, well, a number of other domestic policy objectives. And we have seen in the last year major energy-consuming countries having announced new measures. For instance, China targeting a 16% reduction in energy intensity by 2015. Here in the United States, having adopted new fuel economy standards with obvious effects. The European Union committed to a cut of 20% in its 2020 energy demand. And Japan aims to cut 10% from electricity consumption by 2030. But despite these and these, these, all these new measures, current efforts fa fall well short of tapping the full potential. And that's what we're doing in this World Energy Outlook. We map out in detail how much more potential exists if we simply adopt those measures that fully justify themselves in economic terms. And 
If by doing that, by 2035, we can achieve energy savings equivalent to 18% of global energy consumption to 2010. And savings on such a scale reinforce the fact that efficiency in energy use, again, is just as important to our energy future as unconstrained energy supply. And increased action on efficiency can serve as a unifying energy policy that brings multiple benefits and also see to it that we extend the lifetime of our fossil fuel resources. Let's not forget about that. Now, I've touched on a range of developments that are shaping and reshaping our energy world and unfortunately taking all of these account, uh, issues into account, the World Energy Outlook also concludes that the world is still failing to put the global energy system onto a more sustainable path. We can see that the world's energy needs continue to increase, driven by rising incomes and a growing global population. And the huge potential for increased efficiencies, which could slow this growth dramatically, will remain unrealized unless governments act to break down the barriers that exist. We've seen fossil fuel subsidies increasing to over more than 500 billion globally. And appetite for reform, it appears to be waning in a number of countries. And despite the climate imperative, the outlook for our energy system continues to be one dominated by fossil fuels and one where we, where we fail to keep a trajectory consistent with a global temperature increase of no more than 2 degrees Celsius. It looks more than 3.6 or even more. And furthermore, while the UN Year of Sustainable Energy for All has a positive impact, yes, we are still in a world where 1.3 billion of the world's poorest people live without modern energy, without access to electricity. So taken together, the analysis within the World Energy Outlook reinforces the simple fact that no country, not even the United States or North America, no country is an energy island. The interconnections between different fuels, markets and prices are intensifying. And, and furthermore, it tells us that in a world where the energy landscape continues to change, our energy policies cannot be set in stone. So I would like to thank Fatih and his team for what you have been doing to, in once again, delivering such a comprehensive piece of analysis. And you know, more than once, this, this book is referred to as, a, as the energy Bible, but Fatih doesn't like that. So that's why I think we change it. It's an atlas. It's more like an atlas because it shows us the path we are on and it's guiding us also towards a more efficient, more sustainable energy future. So, Fatih, I'm going to stop my remarks, and the floor is yours. Thank you very much. So, first of all, thank you very much to Carnegie as well for inviting us back to uh, uh, here to share our views on the World Energy Outlook and our executive director already gave you the, the, uh, the big picture. Let me uh, go through and uh, try to explain you how we uh, see the world and what the key messages are. <clears throat> I guess this is the, okay. So, first of all, yes, the foundations of global energy system are shifting slowly 
but surely and with implications for everybody. Consumers, producers, rich, poor, south, north, uh, for everybody. And there are uh, a few drivers of that uh, shift. One is the oil and gas, unconventional oil and gas uh, revolution in the North America and Iraq. Some of you, uh, when I, I noticed that when uh, Secretary, Deputy Secretary Poneman and our executive director talk about Iraq, I see that some colleagues are not convinced that Iraq may be a game changer because some people may think there are many countries in the Middle East and Iraq is one of them. This is wrong. Because why Iraq could be a game changer? Not only that it has a lot of potential to grow the uh, oil, but also <clears throat> Iraq is very different compared to some of its neighbors in terms of investment framework and how the country is run. So Iraq is a very different country in terms of key characteristics compared to others, and there's a lot of oil to come from Iraq in the next years. The second one is nuclear power. After Fukushima, we have seen Germany, Switzerland, Japan, and now even in France, there are changes in the nuclear policies. So this would mean that we, would, we may well see lower share of nuclear in the future, which at the end of the day will have an impact on the other fuels. If nuclear goes down, this has to be compensated by other fuels. It can be renewables or gas or coal. This will affect that. And the third driver is the efficiency. Our executive director told you that there is a growing momentum now. We talk about energy efficiency years and years in the intention energy circles, but there is a growing momentum. Only in last year, four major economies put legislations in place in terms of energy efficiency. U.S. Uh, talked already. China, in its five-year plan, a 16% intensity improvement target, a very strong one, by the way, which is much more important than the United States in terms of its global impacts. Japan has an important uh, target in terms of electricity savings, and the, we have the energy, which is a directive in Europe now. Oil prices. When we talk about high oil prices, many people think immediately on the 2008, 147, when the prices are high. And this is definitely wrong to think only about that. Because what affects the economy, what affects the decision makers, not only one day, but an average. When you look at the year 2012, this year, 1st of January today, we have the highest oil price ever in the history. And this is very important, ladies and gentlemen, especially when the global economy is in such a fragile situation. Natural gas is a completely different story. Natural gas prices in Europe is up to five times higher than in the United States. And in Asia, eight times, it is a huge one, eight times higher than the United States. And it is even much more striking if you think that only five years ago, only five years ago, natural gas prices in these three regions were more or less the same. Perhaps only one, one and a half dollar difference. And within five years of time, this more or less similar price levels change a lot and there is a big divergence and our analysis show that they may get closer but there will be still a big gap between these three regions with major consequences that I will come in a minute. 
unsustainability. It is a, a huge uh, problem. And uh, some of you may know, who follow the outlook since uh, some time, since 10 years, we look at these fossil fuel subsidies. And it gets uh, international uh, uh, support in the context of G20 in Pittsburgh and so on. I tell you, you know what does this 523 billion mean? It means the following. In Europe, we have a modest carbon price, about $5 per ton of CO2. We think, can it go to higher 20, 30? In, in the United States, it's a strong debate about putting CO2 prices in order to clean up. And people are thinking $20, $30, there's a big debate. But what $520 billion subsidies mean it is about a $110 per ton of CO2 an incentive to emit. So you are, on one hand, you think of $20, $30 to clean up, but on the other hand, you give $110 to pollute the world. So therefore, for me, fossil fuel subsidies are the number one enemy of the fight against climate change. So we have to take this into in account. Another one, last year, carbon dioxide emissions increased a full one gigaton, a big increase. And when we look at the data of the first six months of this year, we see that this trend is continuing, whereas renewable energies are in difficulty. After almost 10 years of an increase in renewable energy investment in the world year by year, for the first time in 2012, we are expecting a decline in global renewable energy investments. And another point, it is also uh, highlighted uh, by our executive director. Since a decade in the outlook, we look at the issue of energy and the poor. Mm -hmm. And today, 1.3 billion people, 20% of global population has no access to electricity. In Sub-Saharan Africa, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. And we think as International Energy Agency, this is not only an energy issue, this is not only an economic issue, but beyond that, this may be a moral issue for all of us, an issue that we follow very strongly in the IEA. <clears throat> Mr. Deputy Secretary, kindly talk about the IEA and how it was founded. And we are, of course, having uh, uh, challenges as all the organizations. One of the challenges we are facing is the fact that the share of our governments, member governments, in the global energy use is declining, and declining significantly. When we were founded in the mid-70s, the share of our member countries, the OECD countries, namely US, Canada, European countries, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and Korea, their share in the global energy use was about two-thirds, and very soon it will go down to one-third a big decline of our uh, uh, government's or uh, nation's role. And what is increasing is China, of course, India and Middle East are the emerging countries. And what does this mean? This means the following. The center of gravity of the global energy use is moving to east, leaving west and moving to east, and the energy demand, investment, and the others will be there, and the decisions 
which will be made in Beijing or in New Delhi will not only affect those markets, but all of us through different trade, technology, and other linkages. Now, the story of the United States. We have been seeing a decline in the U.S. oil production years and years. But as a result of the technological developments, as we have described in our uh, World Energy Outlook, we expect an increase in the U.S. Uh, production. And as it is widely reported, we expect U.S. to overtake Saudi Arabia within the five years of time. U.S. will be the uh, largest oil producer of the world, but, but Saudi Arabia is and will remain the largest oil exporter of the world. So these are two different things, being the largest producer and largest exporter. There are two different issues, and Saudi Arabia will be still the largest exporter of the world. In terms of natural gas, four years ago, in the World Energy Outlook, we said a silent revolution is taking place in North America in terms of natural gas, and that silent revolution became loud and beyond North America now. But what happens in the United States is that we expect the unconventional gas to grow strongly and the uh, United States to overtake Russia around 2015, clearly as the largest natural gas producer of the world. So within 10 years of time, we expect United States will be the largest oil producer and largest natural gas producer of the world. Iraq. As uh, Mr. Deputy Secretary mentioned, this year we focused on Iraq and made a special study with the, together with the Iraqi government uh, with their help, even though our numbers differ significantly. We expect Iraqi oil production to double very soon, and these numbers are, as I said, significantly lower than the government numbers. But even so, ladies and gentlemen, Iraq will play a crucial role. I know that we have a lot of colleagues from the, uh, from the diplomatic circles here. There are many numbers, but if they want to remember one number, if I may suggest to them, is the following. In the next 20 years, almost 50% of the growth in global oil production will come from Iraq and the rest from all other countries put together. So every second barrel which should be added to the growth of global oil production will come from Iraq. So we cannot overstate the importance of this very country. And Iraq will be exporting oil mainly to Asia. A key destination will be China. There will be a growing trade access between China and Iraq and two ways. Not only that the Iraq oil will go to China, but when I mentioned the growth in Iraqi oil production, important, 30% of that growth will come from the oil fields in Iraq, which are either directly owned by the Chinese companies or Chinese companies in consortium with other companies. So there is an important development in that direction. And Iraq has not only huge resources of oil and gas, and Mr. Deputy Secretary mentioned the reserves number, and I can uh, assure you, 
that uh, at least that part of his speech will need to be updated in a couple of years of time because there has not been enough or at all exploration work in Iraq to discover new resources. With the exploration activities starting, those resources number will go up. And let's do not forget that it is very cheap to produce oil in Iraq. To produce one barrel of oil in Iraq is about 15 times cheaper than, for example, Canadian oil sands, or 10 times cheaper than the Russian oil, if you want to put it in a context. Now, Middle East and United States. Another point that is, uh, I think, one of the important findings of our uh, World Energy Outlook. United States, until recently, was importing a significant chunk of its oil from uh, key Middle East producers. And looking at the demand and supply picture in the United States and the, what is going on around the United States with the neighbors, we expect that the, the need to uh, import Middle East oil very soon will go literally to zero. So there will not be a need to import Middle East oil uh, for the United States in the next years uh, to come. U.S. will still import oil, but this may well be coming from uh, shorter distances as it provides uh, much more uh, economic uh, aspects. And uh, when we look at the uh, Middle East, Again, there's a big change, big shift there, and it is also something for the diplomats and the others to, to, to think about. What does it mean? Until very recently, half of the Middle East oil was going to West and half of it was going to East. And very soon, we will see that about 90% of the Middle East oil will go to Asia. And this means something. This has a lot of implications from the security of sea lanes to, I don't know, the trade issues to issues of the foreign policy and, and the others, but this will be definitely a, a major change. <clears throat> Natural gas. Uh, what happened in the United States, Canada, Australia, and the countries are changing the natural gas uh, picture and there are winners here, there are losers, and there are countries in between. Winners are definitely the ones like Australia, US, and Canada. Losers are the ones, the traditional gas exporters. They are losing for two reasons. One, in terms of volumes they export. They will export less volumes, less gas, compared to what they expect before the shale gas revolution. And second, the price of gas that they, are, they were selling will be a bit uh, different than what they thought before. Now, this was the, or the today, this is the trade uh, worldwide, natural gas trade among the regions, and this will be much more interwoven in the next years to come as a result of new producers coming in the picture, such as the United States for example, and exporting gas. We expect United States around 2020, Australia increasing its exports, and there'll be much more of a flexible uh, natural gas markets, which means, and I, I come to countries in between now, such as the importing countries, such as Europe, will have a lot of strong cards in their hands in their negotiations with the traditional gas exporters. 
This is, as I said, this is the a gift that the North America gave to Europeans, deliberately or not, but this is definitely a gift. But whether or not Europeans will be able to make use of this, this is another story. It remains to be uh, uh, seen. But this is definitely a major change in the gas markets as well. <clears throat> as our executive director told you, one of our key preoccupations is the energy security. And in fact, all the governments in the world are preoccupied with energy security today, and energy security is becoming a crucial element of foreign policy as well. For example, China is very much preoccupied with energy security. Two weeks ago, we had the Chinese Communist Party conference, and it was one of the key topics that they have discussed, as we read in the newspapers. And China today, ladies and gentlemen, uh, imports about 15% of it is gas and 50%, half of it is oil. And this is a major preoccupation for China and also, of course, for Europe, India, and the others. And when we look at the future, we understand that they have a reason to be worried, as you see in this picture. Their import dependency is growing substantially. China is growing, India is growing, Europe is growing. Japan is not growing because it cannot grow more than 100%, but it's almost there. But all others are growing significantly. But there is one country which is going in the other direction, which is the United States. U.S. becomes a gas exporter, leave aside uh, importing, and imports go down significantly. Now, here is a point that I wanted to make. Uh, that uh, uh, Madam President already mentioned and our executive director as well. When our uh, book came out, we received a tremendous uh, press coverage that we could have never, uh, at least I could have never imagined. But they were uh, kind enough to report our book, but they were not uh, right enough to report our uh, numbers. The import dependency going down in the United States is not only because of the growth in production, this is one part of the game, but also as a result of the introduction of fuel efficiency standards finally, I should say, in the United States. So the production, domestic production will go up, one factor which is good. The other factor is domestic consumption will be much lower as a result of the new fuel efficiency standards. This is very important. The success story has two legs, otherwise it couldn't run. One leg is the uh, production growth, the other leg is the uh, lower demand. If the, one of the driver is uh, North Dakota in the success story, other driver is the Detroit. We should definitely uh, put these two things uh, together in our uh, mind. And this is, of course, important for the other countries and also for the United States to understand that the efficiency does matter and provide you concrete results in terms of energy security and beyond. Now, when we look at the electricity generation, we have a lot of colleagues here I see from the utilities, from the power uh, companies. We see uh, that the Japan uh, nuclear will be definitely much lower than before and coming uh, strongly as a result of uh, nuclear, we see renewables and gas replacing that. Europe natural gas and renewables, mainly as a result of government subsidies. I will come to that in a, in a moment. Renewable growth is driven by the renewable subsidies. 
and United States continuation of the natural gas growth. And we, will, we are looking forward to hear what the administration will decide about the renewable support schemes. But assuming that it will go ahead, we see renewable and gas to replace United States and help to reduce the carbon footprint further. India, a major growth in India. This number is a big number. If there was no China, India would be the China because of the numbers you see here. And uh, India becomes around 2020 the largest coal importer of the world. And this is something very crucial, especially for the Asian markets. <clears throat> we have a lot of numbers in our book, and they are all, at least for me, very interesting. But there is one number for me which is more interesting than all others, even more interesting than the Saudi Arabia US story. Namely, Despite this growth in India, the electricity generation growth, the spectacular growth, there are many economic historians also here, even uh, uh, from the universities I see here, and they know that the indicator for a civilization in terms of economy is one of the indicators, electricity consumption per capita. Despite this growth, electricity consumption per capita in India in the year 2035, 2035 will be equal to the electricity consumption in the United States in the year 1947. So there will be still 100 years of a difference between these two worlds. Just trying to put the things in a context between rich and poor, between developed and developing countries. And yet, of course, we have our China. There is China. So therefore, it is China is coming. So it is dominating the entire energy picture. China will add this additional capacity of electricity generation in the next 20 years equal to one United States of today plus one Japan of today. In 20 years, they are adding the United States, what we are talking here about US, plus a Japan. This is only addition to the existing capacity of China. And what does this mean? It is not only nice graphs and colors and so on. It means the following. Whatever China goes for in terms of technologies, fuels, and so on will affect all of us. If China goes for a technology, let's say technology X, I don't want to give a name, for the electricity generation, even though it's a new technology, since there will be a huge growth of that technology and the application of technology, cost of the technology will go down as a result of learning by doing, and this will have major implications for its uh, profitability and for the other markets. Therefore, it is the reason I am saying the decision which will be made in Beijing will be very important for all of us, even though we don't live in China. Now, I mentioned renewables are growing strongly, which is a good news for the uh, climate change and energy security, but this is mainly as a result of subsidies. And today, renewable subsidies are about $88 billion. And the important thing is about half of those renewable subsidies are already locked in, the, uh, which means the government have already promised uh, the uh, renewable uh, producers that is locked in, and in Europe, and in other countries, as a result of the fiscal challenges we are facing, 
renewable subsidies are under a lot of discussion, and some countries are already cutting the renewable subsidies. So therefore, uh, the renewable uh, projections I show you in our charts, these green bars, are very much hinging on whether all the subsidies will be there. There are renewable uh, uh, projects which do not need much subsidies, but the bulk of it, especially offshore wind, solar, will still need significant renewable subsidies. Now, I mentioned uh, to you about this change in the foundation of the global energy system. There are two major components of that. One is on the geopolitical uh, balances, and uh, our executive director uh, already told you about that, and I'm sure many of you will uh, talk about this. But the other one is on the, the, uh, the competitive economic station positioning of countries. And this is uh, one of the indicators I mentioned to you, natural gas prices, very different in Europe in US and Japan. The other one is the electricity prices. Electricity prices will be very different from each other, which is crucial for the heavy energy industries on top of the natural gas prices differentials I mentioned to you. For example, in Europe, where we live, our executive director, me and the other IEA colleagues, the VR going to pay 50% more electricity prices than United States and about three times higher, 300% higher than in China. And Japan is even worse, much more higher cost basis. Why in Europe we pay more money? Because of the following. First, Natural gas as an input electricity generation much much more expensive. Second, in Europe, we are leaving the in some countries the nuclear power uh, generation, which is cheap to produce electricity, and most of those power plants are already up and running. But we are we are killing them, we are shutting them down. This is another uh, reason. Third, we have uh, carbon prices, and the others don't. And fourth, we have significant renewable subsidies in many countries. So, and the U.S. is, of course, enjoying a very low cost base here, and it may well be an opportunity for the U.S. colleagues to think it may well be very timely to look at uh, how the, they deal with the climate change uh, uh, challenges here, whether or not they can uh, consider some changes in the pricing uh, policies. But otherwise, it provides a major economic uh, benefit, economic uh, competitive advantage of, for United States and China vis-a-vis -vis Europe and Japan in terms of the heavy energy industries. And we know that some of the industries in Europe are now moving away because of the high energy costs. And also for the purchasing power of the citizens, this is definitely not a good news. A topic that we look uh, for the first time in the IEA, uh, in the World Energy Outlook, is the energy and water. Today, about 15% uh, of the global water use is consumed by energy, and this is set to increase significantly. And this is used for uh, electricity generation, for cooling the power plants, and for uh, fossil fuel production and biofuel uh, production. And our numbers show that for the electricity generation, shale gas production, oil sands, there will be a more and more of a problem of water. 
and the voter is becoming a criteria in assessing the feasibility, economic feasibility of the energy projects in the future. And this would be because of its economics, because of its uh, feasibility. So, let me come to the second message. The first one on the changing global energy landscape, and the second one is, uh, as our executive director told you, this year we focused on energy efficiency. And we look at country by country, sector by sector, what is the potential economically viable potential for energy efficiency. We have country numbers and we have the global number. Even the policies that we mentioned, in what is in the United States, the CAFE standards in Europe, the Efficiency Directive, China, Japan, even if those policies were to be pushed in the next 20 years, there will be still, there will be still, two-thirds of the economically viable potential will be left unused. Two-thirds. And this is definitely an, at least an economic sin. Last week, I was in also our executive director and myself going to many countries and discusses with the governments and with industrial leaders. In a meeting, I was a, with the CEO of a major international oil company in Norway, and I asked him, what would you do if you had an oil field which is producing handsome profits with the prices now, and you produce the one-third of this oil field, the oil, and after that, you close the, uh, you uh, put the cement on the field and don't use it anymore. What would you tell your people? He said, I would fire the reservoir engineer. And here, it is exactly the same story. It's exactly the same story. Two-thirds of the energy is still there, and I don't know whom we should fire here, because there is no reservoir engineer. So we have to find a way to make use of this two-thirds of the energy efficiency uh, potential, and this is definitely a very disappointing uh, picture. One good, uh, perhaps one promising, one hopeful indication in this picture is when you look at the different sectors, it is the industry sector which uses most of the potential compared to others. Why it is hopeful? Because with all respect to colleagues from the industry here, industrial sector has only one objective, or let's say one main objective, which is to make money. It means if they, if they make the most of the potential, it means there is money in this thing and there is a business case for the energy efficiency improvements, which is definitely a good uh, news. Now, but generally, when we look at the countries, I can tell you that uh, what this tells us is that energy efficiency policies is an epic failure of the international policy making. Uh, of course, there are exceptions, but when we look at it globally, this is definitely an epic failure, at least uh, I think so. Now, what we have done is that to provide a guidance for our governments, for, our, for the others, if they push the button for the economically viable energy efficiency measures in the transportation sectors, the equipments, uh, the, uh, uh, home equipments, in industry, and so on, how would it change the world? This is our essential scenario, and this is 
on the basis of that, we made an efficient world scenario, assuming that the governments will push the button for the economically viable efficiency measures. And what we see is that worldwide, we save a lot of coal, we save a lot of oil, gas, and everything, which means the, we have the same comfort, same lifestyles, and on top of that, we are using less energy, which is very good news for energy security. Second, those efficiency policies are very good in order to reduce the energy expenditure of the consumers. Because even though if they go, for example, they go, they want to buy a, a, a television set. There are two television sets, exactly the same quality, exactly the same standards, but one of them is more efficient, but $100 more expensive. If they go and buy that $100 more expensive one, in few years of time, this money will be paid back in terms of lower energy bills. And what we have calculated that in all the countries, we see a net gain in terms of the expenditure going down. But of course, governments need to get to organized to make the consumer to buy the higher capital costs in the beginning, but economically much better choices for the consumers to buy the television set. And this is, of course, we have, this, we have uh, explained in our work how it is to be done, what governments need to do to push the consumers to make the right choices and provide the right information. This is the second advantage of energy efficiency. First is less energy use and good for energy security. Second, good for the economy. The third and the last one is on the uh, uh, climate change. Climate change, we have the Doha meeting starting uh, uh, this week, and you rarely, at least I rarely see any significant news in the newspapers, and there is no momentum. To be frank, the momentum about the climate change is sliding down slowly but surely. This is where we are now. And to have a very soon a legally binding agreement to hope that uh, will be really a bit uh, far uh, stretch, at, at least for the time being. But the good news is, but let me first say the bad, the bad news. The bad news is the following. With the, if we do not put new policies in place, with the current policies, global temperature is set to increase six degrees Celsius. With the current policies in place, close to six degrees Celsius. And this will have devastating effect for everybody. Even the school children know it by now. And every year in the World Energy Outlook, we look at where we are, we put a tick. Yes, we are following the, that rather horrible trend when we look at the CO2 emissions. We are following that trend in a loyal way every year. But the world leaders, the good news, okay, the uh, good news from the world leaders, they agreed to limit the temperature increase to 2 degrees Celsius. This is definitely good news, but this agreement is, of course, not a legally binding agreement. And we at the IEA, in the context of World Energy Outlook, wanted to know how much room we have to come with this two degrees trajectory. This is the, what is the room of maneuver? Are we, did we already miss the boat or not? What we have done is that we made the assumption. We said, let's assume to make it to understand where we are. Next 20 years, we do not build worldwide 
any new power plant. It is frozen. No new cars come in the streets. No new factories are uh, built. From the existing infrastructure, power plants, cars, and factories, how much emissions will come? Just only from the new ones. And how does it compare with the emissions allowed us to stay under below this green line? And what we have found out, ladies and gentlemen, is that only from the existing ones, if nothing built new in the next 20 years, we are already eating up about 80% of the emissions which are allowed us to stay under two degrees. Even if we don't do anything, which is, of course, completely nonsense. We are building power plants, new cars are coming, new factories are built, and every day this time is ticking, and this is the only room of maneuver left for us. And if there is no a legally binding agreement very soon, which will change the energy investment trends, as of, according to our calculations, as of the year 2017, only five years from now, we may well say goodbye to a two degrees trajectory. The door may well be closed. And this is definitely a bad news for all of us, which means forget the two degrees, any degrees or 2017, it means we have to say goodbye to the lifestyles, to the way of life we are enjoying or living at least uh, today. And to be honest with you, we do not see, as I said, the major hopes that there will be international legally binding agreement uh, worthwhile. So we thought, when we look at the options we have in hand, I mentioned the situation with renewables, uh, which is zero technology, zero emission technology. Nuclear power, we, it is also in a difficult situation. Carbon capture and storage, a very crucial technology, but appetite is not, uh, unfortunately, not yet there. We thought, what happens? If the efficiency button, like the efficient world scenario uh, we just described you, is pushed forward, if the governments push the efficiency button, what happens? What we see is that if the efficiency is pushed, this door may be open an additional five more years. So the efficiency policies can help us the door to two degrees to be closed not in 2017, but we will buy time, addition time, for five years. And looking at the general discussion on climate change, these five years may be precious for us. Perhaps the mood, the atmosphere, the ambience about the climate change and how the world leaders see may change and we may well see a broader agreement and the action there. And the second, those five years may give us more time to some technologies which are not mature enough now can be mature and can be much more uh, penetrating the markets. So energy efficiency, therefore, not only good for energy security, not only provides economic benefits for the consumers and the uh, uh, economies, but also good to address the climate change and other environmental problems. So let me finish uh, our presentation by trying to put our uh, thoughts uh, uh, together. The Energy issues are becoming more and more complex. And therefore, the decisions which are taken on the energy front may well have implications directly for environment or uh, for economy. Or vice versa, 
decisions taken on the economic side may well have implications for energy and environment. There's a more of a, a complex issue between these three objectives, and uh, therefore uh, the job for the governments, not only energy, but the environmental finance and others will be much more tougher in the next years to come. Hence, you have the International Energy Agency uh, uh, here trying to provide uh, guidance uh, to you. Our, the outlook for energy production use is changing, and it will definitely redefine the relative balances of the countries in the global economic uh, landscape, and the geopolitical balances are changing very quickly, because energy is definitely one of the key aspects of the uh, geopolitical considerations. Iraq, we believe, will be crucial for the global oil markets in the next years uh, uh, to come with its huge oil resources and the uh, need for growth. Climate change is slipping off the policy radar in almost all countries uh, in the world. And the problem is the following, as our chart showed you, or I thought it showed you, the later we fix the problem, the more costly it will be. The more costly it will be, the more difficult it will be to have an uh, agreement. The, more, the longer it takes to have an agreement, the more costly it will be. And then you have the vicious circle there. And therefore, it is, uh, the inaction is very dangerous. And therefore, we suggest that the energy efficiency can be the, the, the policy button of the day to address the countries who are going in difficulty in terms of uh, the economy, to help their economies, to help the, uh, the uh, climate change, and can help us to, uh, to keep the door open to two degrees. I started this presentation by describing you the, the unconventional energy revolution taking place in North America with all its implications. This was a prediction, or this was a, uh, what we have foreseen in the world energy four years ago. It was uh, good. But now I would like to finish by saying that uh, I hope to see another unconventional energy revolution, and this time on energy efficiency in the, in the United States and elsewhere. This is the IES hope. Thank you very much. Thank you, Fatih, for that uh, good and sobering presentation. We now have about a half an hour for uh, questions. Um, before that, I'd like to take my privilege as a moderator to make two comments. Uh, one, uh, bad news and one good news. Uh, first, I want to thank, again, IEA for being not only the uh, atlas on energy issues, but also the bell ringer on climate change, which was not in your original mission, but which you have become the champion for uh, uh, ringing that bell over the last several years. Um, one, uh, on the bad news side, we noticed that uh, six degrees center, uh, Celsius being the business as usual uh, uh, road rear on uh, is absolutely unacceptable. They point out that the new policy scenario, I don't know if that was out, but it's uh, declared, but it's about 3.6 degrees Celsius as well, which is almost uh, unacceptable uh, as ex unacceptable as well in terms of its impact. So, and the new policy scenario assumes that all policies presently declared are implemented and all commitments made under Copenhagen are met. 
Uh, and that's also a very uh, iffy question whether even the new policy scenarios uh, will be met. Um, on, the, on, the, on the good news side, uh, and this is only uh, maybe a, a, a slight, but uh, there are things going on uh, in lifestyle and demographics that could accelerate the efficiency and other improvements. Uh, since we mentioned the CAFE standards uh, here uh, in the United States and since we target transportation as one of our areas of expertise here at Carnegie, it is worth pointing out that not only are CAFE standards, which are basically uh, mostly in the future here, uh, in terms of the, the benefits of the new standards. It's the actual travel uh, uh, in the United States that's going down as well. Uh, while GDP is recovered and is going up 1.5% to 2% a year, uh, actual travel in terms of vehicle miles travels has been going down absolutely, not per capita, but absolutely about 1% to 1.5% a year for the last six years. So there's something else going on out there. Uh, in lifestyle change, in demographics, reurbanization, uh, young people not driving as much. They don't want to, you know, turn 16, and they don't want the car. They want the iPhone. Uh, and um, so there is hope uh, that uh, that there's some other uh, uh, things going on that may give us a little bit more uh, opportunity to get those efficiency benefits. And uh, so. Those are my comments. Now we have, uh, let's take uh, two or three com uh, questions at the same time. We have Anisha, and is that, is that the only microphone? Do we have another one? We have Amber. Okay. Uh, why don't we take right here and then in the middle, uh, man with the and then in the back, way back, just to make sure. So why don't we take this one first? Hi, I'm Alan Kieswetter, and I would like to ask a question about. Uh, the role of Iran, because you emphasized Iraq, uh, but uh, I think Iran, whose production is now uh, suppressed because of embargoes, uh, also will play an important role. Could you comment, please? Okay. Sure. okay. Uh, thank you, uh, Fatih, for that wonderful presentation. Uh, you mentioned uh, problems for nuclear in the OECD. Uh, however, where they have the greatest electricity growth in Asia and Middle East, uh, uh, the options and the opportunities for nuclear might be much better. Uh, construction costs are lower. Uh, the, uh, the regulatory environment is different. Uh, there's uh, much less competitive power markets so that the uh, private investor doesn't have to assume the uh, financial risk of nuclear power. Uh, so, and given the importance of uh, reducing uh, global greenhouse gas emissions, it would seem that this would be a, uh, an important area to emphasize, especially if uh, uh, international institutions could do a better job in creating a, a culture of safety uh, as these new countries develop nuclear power. Okay, nuclear issues. And in the back, could you, uh, when you ask a question, uh, say who you, identify yourself and the, your organization? Way back there. Uh, hello, uh, Scott Tong, Marketplace Public Radio. In your oil projections, the U.S. is projected to surpass the Saudis and then fall back quickly. Uh, how important are the assumptions about the well depletion rates in that calculation? The what rates? Uh, the well depletion rates. 
Okay, so we have the role of Iran in the future uh, energy scenario, nuclear safety, particularly in the Middle East, and oil depletion rates. Okay, Maria, I take it first. Well, I would like to, to answer your first question, but before doing that, I would like to make a comment on the bell ringing on climate change, because this is really, I think, is a very important one. Of course, we are not a climate agency, we are an energy agency, but we are fully aware of the, of the, um, of the impact of energy on the climate, but also the other way around. The climate influence on energy security, for instance, on, on electricity. We have seen Sandy, we have seen floodings, we have seen the tsunami. It all shows us that this interdependence between the climate, weather conditions, and energy is, is, is increasing. And this really needs to be looked into. And we need to have a different kind of realism. We need to have a different kind of contingency planning. We started to work on that just a couple of weeks ago because we really, really are very concerned about this interdependence between climate, weather conditions, etc. on one hand, and energy security on the other hand. Then the role of Iran. What we can see at this moment, that is that around one million barrels a day are, uh, are being produced but are, not, but are not brought to the market. So that means that the sanctions do have an impact and that's what it was all about. The other side, we can see that others are taken up. We can see North Dakota brings producing around 600,000 barrels a day. We see Saudi Arabia bringing, producing more. And we have seen the demand went down for around uh, 500,000 million barrels a day. So altogether at this moment, the oil market is sufficiently supplied. But let's be very careful about this. There is no room for complacency, and we have to be vigilant about it. And, of course, there has been, uh, there has been discussions about something else. That is, there are stocks. There are stocks all over the world. And within the 28 member countries of IA, there are the emergency stocks. They are there, and, of course, we can only use them if there is a real need to that, but they are there. And this, I think, is also something that has to be at the back of the mind of traders, that Stocks are there. Thank you. Uh, now, about uh, nuclear power, you are completely right. Nuclear is a technology which can produce electricity at lower cost and reducing the CO2 emissions. And we always uh, highlight this. And uh, this year's our projections for nuclear power is about uh, 10% lower than last year. But nuclear is still growing. And it is growing mainly coming from China. About half of the capacity increase worldwide in nuclear will come from China, followed by uh, India, Korea, uh, Russia, and uh, other countries. But I should tell you that the life for nuclear is also becoming, even in those countries, a bit difficult because new safety measures are increasing the uh, cost of capital. And there is, a, a, in terms of competitiveness, the life is becoming uh, more difficult. And, uh, uh, but in those countries, these are more government decisions rather than the market uh, competition in many of those countries. Therefore, nuclear will grow, but mainly or almost exclusively coming outside of the OECD countries. In terms of uh, the decline rates, on a well basis, they are very, very high and changed about from well to well. But on a play basis, on a field basis, it is uh, between 5 to 10 percent uh, per year. This is definitely more significant than uh, the conventional uh, oil uh, production. 
but according to our analysis with the an oil price around $75-80, there will be enough incentive to uh, the compensated decline and get the new oil out. But one thing I wanted to take your, uh, bring to your attention, when you look at our projections, after 2020, the light-tight oil is slowing down the growth. Mainly, we are very careful about the, the, the resource base numbers. We are, uh, if the resource base is, uh, can grow, we can see a continuation of the light-tight oil, but currently we grow up to 2020, and the bulk of the resource bases by that time is already exploited and then slows down. But if in the meantime, if new discoveries come, then it will be definitely a, a continuous growth. And Mr. Moderator, one point for you. The U.S. CAFE standards, this is definitely very good news, as we have, as our executive director said, as I said, and everybody. But let's don't go uh, over, over the board. The, even then, the U.S. car fuel efficiency will be lower than the many other OECD countries. Let's be uh, put two things in a context here. Sorry to say that, but this is unfortunate like that. Point taken. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's right here. And then, uh, gentleman right there. And let's get the lady way back there in the, the left. Thank you so much. Saltanat um, Bertikeva. I was wondering uh, your view on Iraq. Uh, you mentioned it's uh, going to be one of the pivotal countries to produce oil. And um, how do you see the... Um, water issue playing in um, producing, increasing the production of oil in Iraq, especially in southern Iraq, uh, particularly given that water is in a severe scarcity in Iraq. And do you see that uh, water could be replaced with um, uh, natural gas injection in oil fields in southern Iraq? Thanks. Amber, I think that man right there in front of you. Hi, my question was about uh, energy. Identify yourself. Yeah, Matt Bandic with SNL Energy. Uh, my question was about energy efficiency. Um, if I'm a re regulated utility, and here I'm speaking about the U.S. because it's what I'm most familiar with, but I imagine this is the case in many countries. If I'm a regulated utility um, and I'm trying to meet new demand, it, m most of my incentives would be to uh, build a new power plant because that's where I'm going to make uh, – my money as opposed to energy efficiency. So uh, with that in mind, I was wondering what are some of the specific things, um, the regulatory and legal changes that could be made to, to realize these uh, energy efficiency gains and, and push utilities in that direction. Okay, and then we had a lady at the back of the room. Hi, I'm Courtney Schlisserman with Argus Media, and um, I wanted to touch on uh, carbon capture and storage. You mentioned um, that it's uh, not very popular right now, uh, and it seems that um, that, that uh, there are numerous reasons, including um, paying for uh, such technology. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, one thing that's been mentioned in the U.S. is uh, enhanced oil recovery as the potential for market for the byproducts of uh, carbon capture and storage. Um, do you think that there is uh, a market uh, for OER? And if not, uh, are there any other uh, so-called clean technologies that uh, could make coal uh, more acceptable on an emissions basis? Okay. Uh, water is a constraint on oil development in southern Iraq. Um, utilities, uh, how to make energy efficiency uh, profitable. 
And number three, CCS, uh, advanced oil recovery, is a potential use of CO2. Okay, perhaps I can start with the injection and the CCS, uh, and our agency director can uh, tell us more on the regulatory issues and the efficiency front. For Iraq, there are, uh, I mean, we mentioned these numbers, but there are many challenges um, to uh, increase that production. And uh, at least two big challenges. One on the, uh, having a consensus between the central government and the regional governments and having a hydrocarbon law that everybody can uh, go and invest there and uh, uh, get their returns and Iraqi get their oil revenues and reconstruct their country. This is one. The second one is on the uh, infrastructure side, need for transportation facilities, pipelines, and other things. And uh, what you mentioned, the injection, the water is a key issue. For the colleagues who are uh, not uh, very familiar with the, uh, this uh, uh, issue, in order to get the oil out of the ground, you have to inject uh, water in. And in Iraq, this is becoming a major issue because even for the, uh, the water, the inland water for the natural aquifer is going down for the potable, uh, for, the, for the drinking water. So what the Iraqi government is now uh, doing is to make a major effort to bring seawater to the, uh, the, the fields in the south of uh, Iraq, where 80% of the production is set to come. And if this project is uh, finalized, it will be definitely a very good news to get the oil out of the ground. And if it doesn't work out, this will be a major problem. And then uh, you have the other options, such as gas injection. It's a rather, uh, for me, not the first option uh, that the uh, government uh, should go, because in Iraq today, a big portion of the uh, gas is anyways uh, flared, and whether or not this could be used, this is a, a second question. But the water is a major issue, and the bringing seawater, there is a huge project that if it continues, it will definitely solve that uh, problem. In terms of CCS, uh, CCS, I mean, the, when we, for the CCS, when we look at the coal, uh, coal remains... Uh, the, we say the gas is growing, renewables are growing, but coal, even though it loses market share, it remains the backbone of the global electricity generation in the next 20 years. So there is no doubt about it. And uh, therefore, uh, uh, the CCS is a very crucial uh, technology. But the, cru uh, the crucial it is, we don't see much happening. There is a major economic barrier there. Without a carbon price in many countries, it is very difficult to see CCS to penetrate the markets. And even in the context of the enhanced oil recovery, I do not see a major growth there unless there is a strong government push backed by the economic incentives. I am sorry to tell you, but looking at our numbers, the the situation at this moment doesn't look very bright for CCS, even though we need CCS uh, very much, as well as other clean uh, coal technologies. But the good news is, in many Asian countries now, the new coal-fired power plants have significantly higher efficiency rates, thermal rates, than compared to uh, in the past. But this doesn't, of course, help to uh, slow down the uh, CO2 emissions growth uh, uh, which and half, more than half of the growth of CO2 emissions come from coal uh, only. Well, and where we are talking about energy efficiency, especially in, in power generation, 
I think it's 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 really very very important to see how it can be achieved, and of course, regulatory changes are one of the issues that are at stake. I agree. On the other hand, well, let's have a look at it. It is: are we going to make money or are we going to burn money? And if you if you really go on using <coughs> as much coal and gas in your power generation as you're doing now, you are burning money. It's as simple as that. So it's not only about regulation, it's also look into the viability of your business case and look into best available technology. My second remark is about what, 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 could, what could you do, for instance? One of the things that could be done is uh, energy performance requirements, for instance, for existing coal-fired power plants. That could be one of the issues that could be done. And the other, of course, is, well, why not have a look at the uh, CHP? And I know there is at this moment a, an adoption of a goal of deploying 42 uh, gigawatts uh, new industrial CHP by the end of 2020. And many states offer incentives for CHP projects. And this really is again have to achieve uh, efficiencies. And these combined at heat and power plants can really have, uh, can achieve efficiencies of over 85%. And of course, I know there are some constraints about transporting the heat, for instance, but it's also, again, about how to use best available technologies and do it in a different way. Well, of course, energy efficiency, as, as we put it in, and as you put it in the World Energy Outlook, is a, is a possible game changer, but we would like to see how it's going to continue to be that, and if it's really going to be that. And that's exactly the reason why from 2013 we'll have a midterm market report on energy efficiency. We'll have now one on coal, on gas and on, uh, and on oil. We started this year with a, a midterm market report on, on, uh, on renewables and there will be one on energy efficiency from 2013. And that doesn't take the, the longer horizon, time horizon as we do in the World Energy Outlook, but it takes a five-year time, time horizon and it shows what in the short term is, being, it, is achievable in, uh, in energy efficiency. Um, combined CHP is combined energy and power, heating and power, uh, if you, for those who don't know. And, and um, also, if you're talking about how to make money out of demand reduction, I suggest you talk to David Hawkins here from NRDC, who's a leader in that subject. And putting conservation in the rate base is one way to do it. Uh, and that's well uh, understood in the regulatory process here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Right here, and then you in the middle, and then man over there on the right. Name, please. Bryson over with Market News International. Uh, so my first question would be, the OECD came up with a report this morning predicting that a global recovery will be hesitant and sluggish over the next two years. So how do you see that uneven recovery impacting or affecting demand in the near term? And then you also said that you see the, the oil markets as well supplied or fully supplied for the moment. So if we see a stronger than expected recovery, would that then change? Because demand might go up and then we need more supply on the market. Hi, Bill Murray with uh, Energy Intelligence Group. Uh, you talked a bit about the, the, the way the media kind of portrayed one element and not the other element of the announcement last week. Uh, but another thing I thought was missed was when you talked about geopolitical issues involved with U.S. production, uh, the difference between being an exporter and being a producer are, as you say, much different. Uh, Saudi Arabia will remain the swing uh, supplier for years and decades to come. It's, I'd be interesting to get your highlights on why that's important and why, in many ways, nothing's changed in terms of oil markets. 
That man over there on the right. Uh, pull ball out no. from okay. I, this man over here. Oh. <laughs> you next. Thank you. Uh, uh, ben Geeman with the Hill newspaper. Thanks so much for your remark today. Just had a, very, a somewhat specific question, actually, about the tally for fossil fuel subsidies in 2011. Is that 520? Excuse me, 523 billion dollar figure. Is that only consumption subsidies, sir, or does that include the production subsidies, such as some of the tax breaks for uh, oil and natural gas production that we see in the United States? Thank you. Okay, um, energy, the economic recovery affecting demand um, and uh, subsidies issue, and I can't read my own writing here. What's the third one? Saudi Arabia. Saudi, oh, the implication of Saudi Arabia being still the major exporter. Yes, when uh, there will be a real economic recovery, it will certainly affect demand. We can see at this moment that the, the, at this moment that demand went down for for about five hundred million barrels, five hundred thousand barrels a day. So it will affect demand. And then, of course, the question is, what will be the uh, the, the the production to meet that demand? Well, as I mentioned before, it's uh, it's not only from the United States; it's also from uh, from Iraq. And we, we expect Iraq to be really one of the biggest uh, exporting countries, the biggest exporting country in, in the future. And, of course, this will put some constraints on OPEC because, if, as, as you know, OPEC has, has a ceiling, a production ceiling. So these questions will be, I think, one of the most important questions to be answered by OPEC itself. Either what are they going to do about the ceiling, the moment that Iraq production will really, will really be there. And the second thing is... In what way will it affect the uh, the quota within OPEC countries? The third, the second thing I would like to to mention about your about your question about the demand and about supply is what's happening in the Middle East and combine actually make a reference to the fossil fuel subsidies in the Middle East because what what but but Fatih will go into into in more into detail in that. But what we can see that is that because of the increasing fossil fuel subsidies. In the Middle East, we can see that a lot of domestic domestic production is now used for domestic demand. So if, we, if you do something about energy efficiency on one hand, reduce the fossil fuel subsidies on the other hand, in the Middle East, it frees up extra oil for product for, for, for export as well. And I think this is something that has to be answered by the countries there. Because, but it's important because it's not only important because of the fossil fuel subsidies, but it's also important because it will increase their, their export revenues. And this, I think, is something that can't be, that can't be forgotten. Um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, Saudi Arabia's role, I don't think that Saudi Arabia, first of all, United States will not replace Saudi Arabia. So it's a completely two different uh, stories. Saudi Arabia is, uh, let me repeat, is and will remain the largest oil exporter of the world. And we have seen that in the last couple of uh, uh, occasions, Saudi Arabia made a very important steps in order to comfort the uh, uh, markets, which is very much uh, appreciated. And uh, I don't see any diminishing role of Saudi Arabia as a result of uh, United States uh, oil production is increasing. Is, uh, our numbers show that Saudi Arabia will be still the, if I may say it so, the central banker of the oil industry for many years uh, uh, to come. In terms of uh, subsidies, these are uh, the uh, we look at the consumption subsidies, the the, the prices at the pump. And uh, about uh, 
biggest portion of this comes from the uh, Middle East countries. And uh, before the, uh, around 2010, uh, many Middle East countries already uh, announced their intention to reform their uh, uh, pricing regimes. But in the year 2011, uh, uh, as a result of several factors, uh, we have seen that the not uh, uh, leave aside reducing the subsidies, we have seen a significant increase of subsidies in key Middle East and North African countries, which is substantial implications, including the one that Maria just told you, because in many countries there, they, their export availability becomes a problem because of their domestic consumption. Yeah. Because true. you... you uh, exporting oil is different, ex uh, producing oil is different. You export what you produce minus what you consume at home. If you consume a lot at home, as a result of very low artificial prices, huge demand, then you have little uh, to export, which you use a lot of uh, money. Therefore, uh, this is a key issue. And one of the issues that we are going to work on in the next World Energy Outlook, looking at the subsidies and impact on the key uh, producing countries. If you can figure out how to raise the, the uh, eliminate the subsidies for oil and gas uh, in, in the Middle East, you can let us know here in the United States. Really difficult. You first, and then you had a comment, the guy who wanted to talk. Why don't you go first, and then you, and then David. Hi, I'm Paul Ballard. I'm from uh, uh, WayVenture Visor Group and Fellow Magazine uh, newspaper. Question I had was about poverty. You mentioned that 20% of, yeah, of the world's population is dependent on uh, non-fossil uh, fuel. In other words, they don't have access to electricity. And I was wondering what your model projects in terms of the level of poverty in 2035 and what are you assuming about people's consumption of energy if they're not having access to electric power. I know from work I've done in the past that there are countries where, uh, certainly in sub-Saharan Africa, where 90% of the population doesn't have access to electricity and they use biomass, and much of the biomass has actually been depleted. So presumably that we're going to see further depletion in years to come. Do you, how do you factor that into your assessment? Okay. Hi, Tamar Hallerman with Exchange Monitor Publications. Mr. Birol, you, um, you mentioned kind of the transformative quality that China has when it adopts uh, newer technologies. Uh, and you also mentioned earlier how you don't see the future for CCS being as bright as people thought it would be a couple years ago. Uh, but this year we've seen a lot of major investment from the Chinese in, in CCS. Um, so I'm wondering how hopeful you are in, in uh, mm -hmm. that nation being able to transform that technology. And uh, David. Yes, uh, Dave Hawkins with uh, Dave Hawkins with Natural Resource Defense Council. Thanks for the plug, uh, and you can go to our website and see all the states that have adopted uh, uh, sharing for uh, uh, a profit sharing for energy efficiency investments, and it is changing uh, utility behavior in those states. Uh, my question had to do with the analysis on energy efficiency, and you mentioned that two-thirds of the uh, efficiency in the, new, in the economically viable efficiency in the new policy scenario would go unpursued. Uh, that suggests that um, either, uh, either the modeling is not using an economically derived uh, deployment formula or that you're incorporating some non-economic barriers. And if you could clarify, that would be helpful. Okay. Uh, demand as in relation to poverty levels in 
2035. Uh, China CCS is at uh, high potential, and uh, and the models for um, why aren't we uh, being more energy efficient? Okay, so uh, very quickly. Uh, now, today, uh, 1.3 billion people, uh, we said, have no access to electricity. And uh, despite the economic growth worldwide, despite the technological progress, in 2035, uh, according to our numbers, there will be still 1 billion people who will have no access to electricity. But the difference is that currently 1.3 billion is in sub-Saharan Africa and in South Asia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. This 1 billion will be almost, big portion will be only in sub-Saharan Africa. The South Asia is becoming uh, more electrified and it will be confined problem for uh, 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 sub-Saharan Africa. And this lack of electricity access is one part of the energy poverty problem. The other one is the, the using traditional biomass, the uh, wood, uh, dunk uh, the uh, agricultural waste. This is another problem. And today, 2.6 billion people use this for cooking purposes. And I think I know that I don't know if we have colleagues from Department of State. The uh, Department of State and it, uh, its secretary is very much engaged for the cook stoves, uh, bringing LPG to, uh, to the people because it creates a lot of, in addition to economic health problems, respiratory diseases. Every year, 1.5 million women and children die because of the respiratory diseases caused by the, the, the using uh, primitive cook stoves run by uh, wood or agricultural waste. So, uh, uh, therefore, we think uh, it is a crucial aspect and it is the reason we consider this energy and poverty one of the key issues for the IEA, like energy security and environment, one of the key issues for the IEA, and we are going to definitely uh, uh, follow it uh, up. China, uh, yes, China, there are uh, definitely some pilot uh, uh, projects on CCS, but, uh, and these are very encouraging. But to be honest with you, I mean, when you look at the number of power plants China is building, and uh, without CCS, there is an overwhelming uh, difference there. And uh, if China was to have an economic incentive to push to CCS and other incentives, this will definitely be, as you said, given the size of the market, this will definitely uh, change the uh, picture. But uh, I don't think the numbers I know uh, doesn't bring us there that uh, it will be a game changer, even though uh, for China, CCS is not only important for the uh, for the uh, climate change, for the uh, for the CO two emissions, but also some other uh, considerations. So, David, uh, first of all, thank you very much for your kind slides. David is somebody that I should also recognize. He he makes out of our slides much more beautiful slides than we originally have. Thank you very much for that. I get a lot of inspiration from your slides and see follow your website very carefully. Uh, these are your uh, right. The many barriers in terms of energy efficiency implementation are non-economic barriers, and it is the reason uh, the uh, we believe that the energy efficiency, if there will be a, a unconventional energy revolution, energy efficiency, this will be the governments will be the ones who need to push this upon this and to this. I shouldn't say destroy, but to eliminate this non-economic barriers. And this is the reason I think 
uh, wherever we go, we push this energy efficiency agenda. Yes, and just to have two examples, and examples that we have, well, we see them in all the countries. It's, for instance, who pays, for instance, for the energy efficiency uh, measures is not always the same as the one who gets the benefits. And especially when we look into buildings where you have the owner-tenant relationship, this is really one of the biggest uh, problems we are we are facing. And the other one is, of course, you, you also have these split incentives. If you have a more efficient um, energy household appliance, for instance, well, does that always encourage to use less efficient, to use less energy, use less power? No, because you see your electricity bills going down. So what do people sometimes do instead of having one washing machine? They have two. Instead of one fridge, they have two. Well, that's also something that has to be looked into. So we have to have also some kind of uh, pricing policy, fuel pricing policy and electricity pricing policy. Just give two examples. Okay, we're almost out of time. We have time for let's two more questions. And then, uh, man, right behind you, Anisha. And if we, is there another? Let me take that. You're right here on the left. Uh, thanks very much. Uh, George Dragnich, uh, Northport, uh, which is a major insurance company. Uh, I'd be interested in, in what you were saying. You alluded to the, the cost of industry. Uh, and, the, and the effects of, of industry in, in your remark, Dr. Bell. Uh, recently, last month, uh, German industrialists complained to the government that the cost of producing in Germany had gone up on an incremental basis because they had given up uh, nuclear energy. The same would be the case with Japan, because there is no cost competition that the U.S. can benefit on nuclear energy. It's essentially the same. Um, and, and so the effect of those countries giving up nuclear energy is to benefit America as an industrial base, which is great for America. Uh, but I, I, I wonder, since you did allude to that in your remarks, if, if you could tell, tell us a bit more about what the IEA is, is doing by way of your economic analysis and seeing how the cost of energy for industry plays out downstream. Thank you. It's me right now. Yeah, I'm going to be a little bit less... Blasphemous here. Uh, take, make take the, quite a case. Make the, take the microphone, make identify quite a yourself. Case actually, in one of your charts for investing in the carbon reduction emission technologies from our current infrastructure of fossil burning facilities. Uh, but yet, I don't hear any recommendation on the level of investment that could be made by the global entities that need to use fossil fuels India, Pakistan, China. Uh, but yet we're calling for incentives for renewable. Uh, and, and yet renewable is not critical in one sense from one of your charts. We have to keep these facilities operating that are fossil fuel. So where and how can we get, in a positive sense, uh, that investment and how much should it be into carbon emission reduction technologies? I'm Ed Helmetsky, Exchange Monitor Publications. Uh, uh, nuclear competitive advantage to U.S. and um, energy efficiency. Okay. Now, the nuclear, the less nuclear in Europe is uh, definitely bit. I mean, from our point of view, uh, the bit news for the uh, Europeans for at least three reasons. One, their economic competitiveness is uh, uh, in trouble because of the electric prices go up, and second. Uh, their CO2 emissions go up. 
because uh, you cannot replace all the nuclei with renewables, which is never happens. Uh, you have coal, you have gas and other things. And third, uh, they, uh, they have to import that energy to replace the uh, nuclear power. Their energy security is in difficulty. Um, it may be good news for America, but I think it is a very, how shall I say, good news for America, but bad news for the world. Uh, so this is because your emissions will go up. So not everything is good for America. Is uh, I shouldn't finish this sentence. So that this is so I should say it is less nuclear means definitely higher CO2 emissions and higher energy cost. So therefore, uh, definitely for the Germany, for Switzerland, and for the other countries, uh, higher energy cost meaning losing of competitiveness. And this is happening, and uh, you see, for example, a major. German petrochemical giant uh, is now uh, moving to the United States because of the low cost uh, base. A again, a major Dutch uh, uh, and English uh, oil company is moving to the United States for petrochemical because of the low uh, uh, cost. So therefore, we shouldn't be surprised if there is more reallocation of the industries because of the high cost in uh, uh, Europe. You mentioned the BDE, uh, the, 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 the report and uh, going to uh, other uh, uh, countries. And of course, this is a good news for the United States because of the, the current account deficit will be pushed downwards, dollar will be stronger, and the trade deficit will be uh, uh, lower. The uh, other question uh, was uh, about the... Uh, investment in renewables? Investment in, in renewables. Investment, there are two different things. One, what we would like to see and the second, what we think, what will happen under certain assumptions. What we would like to see is uh, definitely more investment in lower carbon technologies. And uh, Maria, in many press conferences, you call for higher investments for lower carbon uh, technologies. But uh, we have to report that this is our wish. But what is happening in the markets is different from that. Uh, so this is the reason why we are pushing the governments to create the environment for providing incentive for the industry to go for lower uh, carbon technologies. The industry will not go and invest just to save the world. They will go and invest if there is money and return there. And governments have to make it sure that the industry will get a return. Whatever we say is the idea, industry will like our charts and books and everything, but they will not go and invest because we have nice charts here. They will go and invest because if there's a significant return for them. So therefore, it is more for the governments than for the IEA. Uh, we just give the recommendations to governments, up to them to create that uh, environment. Well, and when we are talking about the, uh, the renewable subsidy schemes, I think we, 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 the two of us, we, we say over and over again, yes, we need subsidy, uh, subsidies for renewables because then there will be more deployment and costs will come down. But please see to it that you... Um, make these subsidy schemes in a reasonable way so that they are flexible and the moment costs are coming down then you need less subsidy and we've seen for instance in the Germany and in Spain where there was a P solar PV bubble nobody wants to have that because it's a burden on your taxpayers but the same taxpayer wants to have clean energy so see to it that your subsidy schemes are flexible and that you if costs come down then the amount of support has to come down as well Okay, uh, we've run out of time. I do hope that you'll be stay for a few minutes for media uh, 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 questions. But um, let's uh, thank uh, this uh, terrific panel for their discussion. Thank you.